Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. If you would open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 6. that line when deathless life is one. We'll be thinking about that through the text of Scripture. John chapter 6 records one of really the few miracles that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. John was written about 30 years, depending on how you count it, after the other Gospels were written. He was aware of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so most of the material in the Gospel of John is actually unique to John. John was the Paul Harvey of Gospel writers telling us the rest of the story. And John tells us something. He says the the miracles that Jesus performed were so voluminous that if we wrote them all down, we couldn't contain it. And so John was very purposeful in which miracles he included in his book. In fact, he doesn't refer to them as miracles at all. I know that many of you know this. Instead of miracles, he referred to them as signs. Signs that signify things. Significant things. And so the fact that John, conscious that the other three gospel writers have included this story, and yet decides to include this story of the feeding of the 5,000 a fourth time, He does it for a significant reason, to signify, to give us a sign of who Jesus is. And so it's purposeful repetition. I know that we're familiar with this story. It's one of the most familiar gospel stories. The feeding of the 5,000 is a little bit of a misnomer, as we find out very quickly as we get into this text. If you look with me in chapter 6, We're not going to read the entire text, but look at chapter 6 and verse 2. We we see this phrase, then a great multitude followed him. And then we see in verse 5 that there was a great multitude coming toward him. And then if we look in verse 10, we find out the count that had been made of this multitude says, and so the man sat down in number about 5,000. And in the parallel account that we read in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew explicitly alerts us to the fact that they had only counted the men. And so to refer to this miracle as the feeding of the 5,000 is really a misnomer. It was probably the feeding of the 20 or 25,000. And so it's a remarkable story that is included here for us. But why did John include it? To get to that clue, we have to go to the rest of the chapter. So here's what I want us to understand as we get into our message this this morning, is we have the actual miracle recorded for us in the first 15 verses of chapter 6. But then chapters 6, verse 22, really through the end of the chapter, this material is all unique to John, and it's a conversation that Jesus has with that great multitude on the following day. We see that in the opening words of verse 22. On the following day when the people came after him. Who were these people? The people that had been 
there with him the previous day. And Jesus interacts with this great multitude of people, and they have a spiritual conversation. And when we get to this conversation that starts in verse 22 and goes to the end of the chapter, all of a sudden we begin to realize the spiritual dynamics of the miracle. I don't know if you remember being a a little kid and you would get maybe in a highlights magazine or maybe on the back of the cereal box, they would have these pictures. And the pictures were usually done in blue ink. But then above the blue ink, there would be like speckles and dots of red. Do you remember that? And you had to go searching in your cereal box for the magical decoder, which was usually a piece of red transparent plastic framed on some cardboard, right? But once you found that piece of red plastic and you could just lay that over the picture on the back of the cereal box, all of a sudden the confusing picture became clear as that red film filtered out the red speckles and you could see the blue picture underneath. That's what's going on here when we take the miracle that's in chapter 15, but then we layer over that miracle the spiritual conversation that happens the next day. All of a sudden we become acutely aware of the spiritual dynamics of that miracle. And it's because of the spiritual significance of the miracle that John writes it and records it for us. He is earnest in telling us who Jesus is. He records the story of the miracle because he wants to get to the message that we see in verse 35, that Jesus Christ is the bread of life. And so here's what I simply want us to do this morning. I want us to make some observations out of the miracle in the first 15 verses, but I want us to look at those observations through the lens of the spiritual conversation that happens on the next day. Going back to the miracle itself, here's the first thing I want us to observe. There is a starving multitude. If all we had was the 15 verses, we might suspect that Jesus performs this miracle because there's a problem, a physical and material problem. A large multitude has excited about all the miracles that he's doing, excited about his teaching, have followed him out into the wilderness. They have gathered around him. They've listened to him teach. He ran long. Everyone's hungry. And Jesus, realizing that everyone is hungry, he performs the miracle so that their bellies would be filled. We might get that impression by just looking at this. Certainly, there's a great multitude, and certainly they are hungry. But the starving multitude's problem is not empty bellies. And so when we get to the conversation that happens on the following day, their true spiritual need is going to be laid bare for all of us to see. I want you to see what happens on the following day. The next day comes and everyone is earnest in finding Jesus. Where has he gone? They would like a repeat. And they're looking for him everywhere. And finally they find him in verse 25. This great multitude finds him. They say, teacher, rabbi, when did you come here? But I want you to see Jesus' response. He doesn't tell them when he traveled to that side of the Sea of Galilee. Listen to Jesus' response to them in verse 26. Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly I say to you, You seek me, 
but not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. In that simple statement, Jesus Christ is laying bare their spiritual need. This multitude that was around Jesus on the prior day was not just starving physically, they were starving spiritually. And this is what he says to them, you're not here today chasing after me because you were perceptive and understood the miracle that happened yesterday. You're chasing after me because your bellies are full. If you see in verse 15 of the miracle, after they see this amazing and astounding miracle, this multitude immediately takes steps to make Jesus their king. Now, Jesus, ironically, was their king. He was the one who had come into this world to be their Messiah, to rule and reign over them, and he has offered them the kingdom. So why not just go along with the crowd? If they want to make him king, he's got 25,000 people that are pretty motivated. We'd all vote for that king, the king that can fill our bellies, the king that can salve our owies. By the way, politicians haven't changed their message as much. Vote for me, I'll fill your bellies, and I'll take care of your owies. Okay, I'll vote for you. This is why they want Jesus to be their king. Why not just go along? I'm sure the disciples were pretty excited on the day of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus, look what's going on. Look at all of this fruit. Look at the crowds that have gathered. Why are you resisting them making you king? Why not just go along? Because please listen to me, the kingdom of God cannot come for the people of Israel apart from their spiritual transformation. And Jesus knows that this great multitude of people is interested in full bellies. You didn't understand the sign You're chasing after me because your bellies are full. I want you to notice a phrase that's right at the end of the miracle. It's in verse 14. The response of the crowd to the miracle in verse 14. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. In our copy of Scripture, you'll have the word, the prophet, capitalized there. You'll see prophet capitalized. And if you have a footnote in your Bible, you're going to see that there's a cross-reference back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses makes a prophecy about a time coming when there will be a man, a, a prophet who comes to rectify the problems of Israel. And the crowd has made the connection. Moses promised a prophet. This is the prophet. But what sort of prophet do they think Jesus is? Well, again, their spiritual misunderstanding is laid bare. We see this in verse 30. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe? What work will you do? Our fathers under the prophet Moses ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. The crowd has equated Jesus. They've made the connection to Moses and they're saying, hey, just like our fathers in the wilderness had all the food that they needed provided by them through Moses, Jesus, why don't you do the same thing? 
And this crowd may have thought that they were honoring Jesus by putting him at the same level as Moses. But my friends, Jesus is greater than Moses. We see this throughout the Gospels. When Jesus stops and talks to his disciples, who do men say that I am? Oh, you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. The crowd was ready to carve Jesus into the Mount Rushmore of prophets. And in doing so, they thought that they were exalting him. But my friends, to equate Jesus with the prophets is to diminish him. There are many people today who say many wonderful things about Jesus. They call him a great teacher. One of the world's largest religions, Islam, honors Jesus as a prophet. But Jesus is more than that. And Jesus begins to correct them. He said, you've misunderstood. I'm not the prophet who brings the manna. He says, I'm the manna. That confused them. It, it, it's as though the crowd is saying, Jesus, would you just please stay on topic? Okay, just let me walk you through. We were hungry yesterday. We had full bellies. We're willing to say you're Moses. Could you do that again? They don't get it. They don't perceive. It's not a lack of faith. They believed Jesus could do that. They saw it for themselves. But it's the wrong faith. We see a starving multitude. My friends, can I ask you what do you see when you look out in our world today? Do you see a starving multitude? And do you see that starving multitude as you look through the lens of Scripture? Do you see the spiritual dynamics of what's going on in our world today? It's so easy for us to look out at the world today and think that what our world needs is a political solution. My friends, the answer to the world's problem is not more ours in D.C. That's not the answer. The challenges that we have are not geopolitical. We don't need diplomats and politicians that can settle things down in places like Russia and the Middle East and in the Far East. That's not the issue. The fundamental issue in our country today is not that we need to return to traditional family values. That's not the fundamental issue. Roe v. Wade went away, and amen to that. But have you noticed that abortion hasn't gone away in our country? See, that's not the issue. What do you see when you look out in our world? My friends, I hope that you see a multitude of people that are starving spiritually. And they're looking for the answers in all of the wrong places. Our world today is not suffering from a lack of belief. It's suffering for a lack of faith in the one who can satisfy their souls. I was reading a biography of Steve Jobs, surely one of the icons of this secular age. The founder of Apple, the inventor of the iPhone, Steve Jobs has had a massive cultural 
impact. And there's a stunning scene in that biography as Steve Jobs racked with cancer. The prognosis is not good. He's sitting in his backyard garden with his biographer. And this is what Steve Jobs said to his biographer. He said, I'm like 50-50 on whether there's a God or not. He's staring into the abyss of his own mortality. And he's like, I'm 50-50. This is true for all people in this world today. They know that they're missing something and they're looking for the answers in all the wrong places. You see, Steve Jobs lived his life with all of his chips on black. He lived like there was nothing after this life. But all of us are at some point faced with our mortality. We're faced with our spiritual need. I'm here to tell you, my friends, lost people lay in bed at night and wonder about what's after this life. God has written eternity into their hearts, and I'm not saying they're looking for it in all the wrong, in all, in the right places, but they are seeking solutions. And let's not be confused, not all of them are going to embrace them. But right in the middle of this passage, we have the promise of God. It's in verse 37. This is the promise of God, and this is what Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. There are people out there, and it is God's purpose for them to come to faith in Christ. We need to see the starving multitude. But my friends, we have to see the satisfying Savior. In our story, in the miracle, Jesus satisfies their hunger. He fills their bellies. Verse 10, Jesus said, make the people sit down. Then there was much grass in the place, and the men sat down in number about 5,000, and Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted so when they were filled. Jesus sits down. He gives thanks. And he satisfies their hunger on that day. But when we come to this spiritual conversation that happens the next day, we find out that Jesus did not perform that miracle to fill their bellies, but to alert them to the truth that he and he alone can satisfy their spiritual hunger. Jesus in verse 35 says, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. I am the bread of life. And, and, and the crowd is confused by this. We thought you were Moses and you could just bring manna down. And he says, no, I'm the manna. Okay, think about that for a minute. Okay, you're Moses. No, you're not Moses. Okay, you're the manna. Okay, you're the manna, and we're supposed to then, what are we supposed to do with the manna? This is where the crowd gets a little, really confused, because it seems like what you're saying to us is that we have to eat you. Well, what does Jesus say? Verse 35, excuse me, 53, reverse the numbers. Then, just, then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall have no life in you. Uh, Jesus is having trouble reading the room here. They're already getting a little squeamish with the idea that he's the manna. 
And they're starting to think, is he saying we have to eat him? And Jesus says, yep, that's exactly what I'm saying. You have to eat me. Verse 56, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood. And that crowd listening to him responds in this way in verse 60. This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? A hard saying? Who can understand it? People that are thinking with spiritual minds. People of spiritual perception. Jesus isn't being cryptic here. He's not trying to be intentionally cringy and saying, you have to eat me. He's trying to make the point clear that the only thing that will satisfy their souls is He Himself. I'm not Moses. I'm the manna. I am the bread of life. I am what you need. But what does it mean to eat, to ingest, to take in Jesus? Well, he makes that clear. In fact, this is one of the reasons that John has included this story because this is right on theme for him of what he wants to say. Go back to John chapter 1. What does it mean to eat Jesus, to take him as the one who will satisfy the hunger of your soul? John chapter 1 and verse 12. I want you to follow along. Read this verse along with me. John chapter 1 and verse 12, but as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God to those who... Can you guys help me out? Okay, my pause was your cue, okay? To those who say it out loud, to those who believe in his name. I want you to go to John chapter 3 and verse 16. John chapter 3 and verse 16, what does it mean to eat Jesus to ingest what will satisfy our spiritual need? John chapter 3 and verse 16, for God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Go to the very last chapter, second to last chapter, excuse me, of the book of John, John chapter 20, where John himself makes it plain, why did I write to you the things that I wrote to you? Why did I pick that story of the feeding of the great starving multitude? Why did I include that? There were so many other things I could have written. Why was that one included? Right here at the end of John chapter 20 in verse 30, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may, say it with me, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you may have life, that you may have life in His name. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. I'm the one who will come and satisfy your soul, and you're going to have to eat me. How do you eat Jesus? You believe. It's weird. It's a hard saying. It doesn't hit us right. But it's exactly what Jesus said. It's exactly what Jesus means. It is by faith. It's not the transubstantiation of the Roman Catholic Church. It's not through a work that you take Jesus in. 
It is through faith. And this is not missing. The crowd didn't discern it, but Jesus told him this explicitly. Look with me. He says, how are you going to take me in? What is the problem that you have? Back to John chapter 6 in this immediate context. He tells them. He says in verse 35, I'm the bread of life. Okay. What does that mean? Verse 35 or 36, but I said to you, you have seen me and yet do not believe. You see, it's an issue of belief. He says to them in verse 47, in this exact conversation, most assuredly I say to you, the one who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. John makes something very clear in his gospel. The lack of faith is not a result of a lack of information. I mean, was this crowd lacking information that maybe they ought to be listening to Jesus and what he was saying? No, the prior day, they saw this amazing miracle where 25,000 people were fed to absolute cessation. They've seen all these miracles. There's going to be another miracle later on in John chapter 9 where a blind man who's been blind from birth is made to see. Was anyone lacking information that that man was born blind and yet now he sees? And the great irony of that story is that the blind man sees and the seeing men are blind. My friends, it's not a lack of information today that causes people from trusting and having faith in Jesus Christ. It is an ardent determination not to believe. The hearts are deceived. This is what he says to them. You've been deceived. And you need to hear. You need to understand. And you need to have faith. So there is a starving multitude And there is a satisfying Savior. But I want to point out one last feature. It's a detail. It's not even the main point. But it's a detail that I don't think ought to go missed. Because on the one hand, we have a starving multitude. On the other hand, we have a satisfying Savior. But listen to what happens in verse 11 of our story. Chapter 6 and verse 11, an important detail I don't want us to miss. And Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them. Are you guys with me right there, verse 11? He had distributed them to who? To the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down. What is in between the starving multitude and the satisfying Savior? Serving disciples. Serving disciples. We don't have time to develop this fully this morning, but this miracle and the crowd's response to this miracle, which we see at the end of this chapter, is a major transition in the life of Christ and what He's doing in His mission here on earth. The crowd, having seen this amazing miracle and listening to Jesus' spiritual message, rejects it. And we see here at the end of chapter 6 that the disciples went back and walked 
with him no more. That's in verse 66. The crowd responds by saying, this is too hard. This is not what we expected. We don't want this. And they turn away. But then verse 67, but Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? And then Peter gets it right here. Peter answered him, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, you know and I know that their faith was still immature and growing. But they get it right. Where would we go? And Jesus transitions his whole ministry here into a time that is often called the training of the twelve. Preparing them and getting them ready. Getting them ready for what? Training them for what? I just want you to look at one verse. It's in John chapter 17. John chapter 17. What was Jesus preparing them for? The starving multitude, the satisfying Savior. And the only way for that starving multitude to have their spiritual needs fulfilled is through faith in that satisfying Savior. What is he preparing his disciples for? It's right here. He prays for them in this high priestly prayer recorded for us in John 17. And we're going to look at verse 20. He says, I do not pray for these alone. In other words, I'm not just praying for these disciples, for these twelve. But look at the rest of the verse, John 17 and verse 20. I'm not just praying for these 12. What does it say? But also for those who will... Are you guys with me? But also for those who will believe in me through their word. Have you ever thought about this? I've thought about this. In the feeding of the 5,000, why does Jesus do it this way? If Jesus' only interest was to fill people's bellies, did he even have to have the boys' lunch? Why the whole charade there of, of breaking the bread and, the, and all that and handing it to the disciples? I mean, he could just directly inject 2,000 calories of perfectly balanced nutrition right into the bellies of everyone there. He could avoid the whole nutritional metabolic system completely and just... Make them all happy and, and, and hungry free. He could do anything. He could have done this in so many ways. Why does he hand the meal to the disciples and say, go take it to them and serve them? Because this is how God has set it up. God in his wisdom has decided that it will be serving disciples that will take the bread of life to the starving multitude. There is no plan B. He could have done it other ways. He has a host of angels in heaven and he could have just dispatched an angel from heaven for each human being who's lived on planet earth. He could have done it that way, but that is not what he has decided to do. My friends, God in his perfect wisdom has decided that it will be serving disciples that will take the message of who He is to those who are starving. 
That's why International Baptist College and Seminary exists. We have nothing to offer but what we have received ourselves. We don't have any good ideas, bright plans. All we have is Jesus. And what we know is that our world has no hope other than Jesus. And Jesus says to us, I am the bread of life. And those people need to hear it. I have no plan B. My friends, there is no plan B for your neighborhood. You're the plan. There's no plan B for Chandler. That plan is us. There's no other plan for your coworkers. God shouldn't have to move another Christian into the cubicle next to you so that your coworkers can hear about him. There is not another plan for your family. There's not another plan for our country. There's not another plan for this world that is starving. It is serving disciples who themselves have had their souls satisfied with Jesus and who say, I will take what I have received to those who so desperately need it. Can I just say this as we close? If not Jesus, then what? You got anything else that this world needs? If not now, then when? Did you know in the whole history of humanity on planet Earth, there have been about 80 billion people who have lived? Did you know that? You know what that means? That means that a tenth of the world's population in human history just took a breath in the last second. We shouldn't be discouraged when we see 8 billion people. The task is so great. What could we possibly do? We ought to hear that and say, a tenth of the world's population is alive right now. Let's go get the job done. Not all of them are going to come, but there are some that God will call to Himself out of that great starving multitude. If not now, then when? And if not you, then who? There is no other plan. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer?